snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? Hello, and welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast that raids and crusades through the past, exploring doom temples and skull kingdoms far and wide, seeking long-lost artifacts of ancient popular cultures, aiming to preserve and study these rare, priceless treasures. Perhaps you recall our previous adventures reanimating a manic mannequin long buried in the pyramids of archaic Egypt, battling the fearsome gremlins unearthed in deepest Chinatown. <laughs> or our epic battles with the ancient gilded women of Miami-Dade. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> oh, Golden, Golden Girls. Girls. <laughs> Through tornadoes and volcanoes, battling killer spiders and gorillas and crocodiles and aliens and dinosaurs. <laughs> And the angriest strippers ever known to man. There is no xenomorph we will not encounter, no baby we will hesitate to place in danger, if it means getting our hands on sparkling gems and fearsome talismans of bygone eras, dating all the way back to the year of our Lord, 1980. <laughs> Alas, after years of excavating tragic kingdoms and emerald cities, we thought we could finally hang up our hats and rest our weary bones. But the fans clamored for more, so we have returned against all odds for yet another adventure digging into the past, where we will find long-lost treasures and probably some mummified skeletons that really should have been left to rest in peace. And traps. Definitely lots of traps. I'm Chris, the podcast host most likely to be killed by a bad date. I'm Seth, the host most likely to know that it's not the years, honey, it's the mileage. And I'm Becky, the podcast host, most likely to order some whiskey while I'm being strangled at a bar. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think I'm pretty likely to have that happen to me, too. <laughs> Today, we are finally talking about the beloved, revered, and widely celebrated Dr. Henry Walton Jones Jr. franchise, <laughs> also known as the Indiana Jones franchise that spanned almost the entire 1980s, starting with 1981's Raiders of the Lost Ark and signing off with the appropriately titled Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade in 1989. It took us seven years to do Indiana Jones movies. I think that's crazy. <laughs> well, I mean, we were spending that time outrunning boulders, hijacking small airplanes, and trying to cross really rickety rope bridges above a bunch of crocodiles. Come on, be fair, Becky. I think this is the one that is the most requested by fans. We've had it mentioned no in multiple reviews. I've been approached in public by strangers <laughs> and haven't that demanded of me. I don't know if that's related to the podcast, but yeah. So it only took us seven years to finally actually listen to our fans <laughs> and what they wanted. <laughs> we had a lot of Spielberg to get through. We've done E.T. and Jurassic Park and Saving Private Ryan. So... I think now with these three movies, Spielberg, I think, is in the lead for director of movies we've covered. Yes, if you count this as three, I do. probably so. Yeah. Zemeckis was the previous champ and uh, still no Scorsese. <laughs> so we are finally getting to this very monumental trilogy in our childhoods and probably most childhoods of the 80s. But first, we will talk about the film that started it all, Raiders of the Lost Ark. We can't promise there will be no snakes, but we will try for minimal snakes. That's a lie. Lots of snakes. <laughs> I hate snakes. I love them. I'm fine with snakes. Jump head back in the DeLorean a Saturday morning Cause we both be sitting to the radical But was it good cause we were young? Was it good cause we were dumb? Did we think it suddenly sucked? Now we're jaded and all grown up And there was so much that we loved Do we think it'll make the cut? Will it be a parasite or will it be fun? Decades later will it still hold up? This is when we were young When we were young We are back after a brief hiatus, just like Dr. Indiana Jones is after a slightly less brief hiatus. <laughs> 
Uh, we're on a brand new mission to dial up Destiny, which we will do on a landline, of course, because this is a <laughs> 80s and 90s podcast. <laughs> Just like Dr. Indiana Jones, we are also way past our prime and hoping we can somehow get through this without needing a hip replacement by the end of our audio adventure. <laughs> well, he's too old to be doing this anymore, guys. I say some variation of that almost every day now, Becky. So honestly, I can relate. So before we get into our discussion, I have an opening question, as usual, for my co-hosts and I. Oh no, it's going to put us on the spot again. My question is, what did you treasure the most when you were young? I mean, my toys when I was little, you know? Was there like a specific one? My bunny was my stuffed animal of choice that I would hug. I just like toys in general. (laughs) (laughs) All toys. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this one's tough. You'd think that I would have, like, a go-to answer. But when I think of all the things I loved when I was little, it was just I wanted more of everything. (laughs) Which I see now with my four-year-old. She wants things. She gets them. And she just wants more things. She saw a picture of a water (laughs) table the other day and was like, I want this one. I want it so bad. I want it. I want it. I want it. What is a water table? Sorry. What is a water? It's like for sensory play, like you can like scoop water, you put water in it and it's a table. Little kids like it because they like water. So then you scoop it and it like dribbles down and you can splash. She wanted it so bad. We got her one that was pretty much like the one she wanted. And then while we're setting it up, she's like, I want this other one. I was like, we're putting it together. So I feel like that's how I was, is I wanted just more. Do you remember why you want, like, felt that way? Like, what do you feel like it was driven by, like, seeing things on advertising? Or was it just, like, this inherent? We very much try not to let her see commercials, but she does see things in, like, magazines at school, which I got to talk to their (laughs) teachers about. (laughs) I think when you're little, you don't know why you feel that way. You just want the things. But I mean, if I'm doing an analysis on like children, it's because there's so little control in your life. You want to have things that are yours and you can do with them as you please. Well, and also like all other feelings, desire is a very, very new feeling to someone that young. And so they haven't lived long enough to gain the perspective of like, oh, I feel this intensely about this desire right now. But like 10 minutes from now or two weeks from now, I may not feel the same way. So maybe I don't need to make this my number one priority in life at this moment. You don't have anywhere near that kind of emotional experience. And so it does feel all consuming, you know, and I'm sure that to some extent, like the desires like that can feel maybe equally as intense for adults. But we've just been around long enough to have a bit more understanding of that. Well, the reason I like pressed on that question is just because it reminds me so much of all these like caves of treasures that are in these movies and mm-hmm. like Aladdin, where like usually the lesson of those scenes is like someone is greedy and is like trying to grab all the treasures instead of whatever they came there for and so it is it is a lot like a child to aladdin yeah (laughs) i want everything there too or i guess it's a boo right Mm -hmm. (laughs) funny enough i can't think of anything really specific it is just i want everything everything was my treasure that i got and no one could play with it or touch it without my say so interesting what about you seth The first thing that came to mind was just my dogs (laughs) and the dogs of others. Oh, other people's dogs too. (laughs) Oh yeah, no, absolutely. Just the experience of having pets and dogs and cats and other animals in my life that I could like get to know and spend time with and like cuddle and take naps with. That has always been like super special to me and it's been something I've 
treasured and sought out. And then the other thing that just really came to mind was like experiences of playing with friends or like doing activities with friends. You know, we're heading into the summer. I was just able to travel home to New Orleans for the first time in like three years. It was just a heavy, heavy nostalgia trip in a whole lot of different ways. But one of the biggest aspects was just like looking at my old house that I grew up in and looking at the places that I used to go to school and used to play around. I just like reminisced a lot about the times in the summer I would play in the sprinklers with my friends and you know other times when I do like sleepovers with friends or like going to a museum with friends of mine and that ability to just like spend time playing with and enjoying time with other people was also just one of the things that I treasured the most especially you know like growing up because I was an only child so I didn't have built-in people in my life who I was living with who I would have to spend time with in that way so yeah it was also a kind of thing where I would have to seek out my my friends and my neighbors, you know, to come hang out. But yeah, those were not just special times, but they were kind of the things I treasured the most in life. So you would survive a Temple of Doom and Becky would die. <laughs> yeah, I think Becky would get Kali Mod. I think that's the overall lesson of this podcast episode. For me, like, it came immediately. Like, I didn't even have to really think. Like, I maybe if I had thought more, you know, I would have thought of something else. But I was just like, nope, that's it. Is it your Wizard of Oz books? Yes. <laughs> wow. Right out the gate. Well done, Becky. I, I knew his and I don't know mine. It's probably because I'm lugging all 40 books around with me at all times. <laughs> yeah, I told you I don't have room for that. Like, I had to clear a shelf for you, Chris. Anyone who listened to the Wizard of Oz episode will have already kind of realized this. But these books are very old. The first one was written in the year 1900. And so even though my actual books were not like first editions from, you know, the 1900s, that would have been like thousands of dollars for some of those editions. The editions that I bought from a company called Books of Wonder, they replicate the exact first mm. edition. Oh, that's so it's, cool. So it has the same dust jacket and all the same illustrations and like the same typeface. Everything is exactly the same. So. So they felt like first editions, even though they were 20 bucks or something like that to buy. That's really neat. The other thing that kind of came to mind was my <laughs> widescreen VHSs, which I <laughs> also have talked about on this podcast many times, which I also treated as kind of like a special object. But these were even more special because they had that sense of history. And again, like talking about Indiana Jones, like digging up these old things, there is something strange that even though these books were technically new, my sense that they were old and that they had, the, you know, the note from the author and it would say like 1908 on it or something like that, that I, I could tell that these things were something that was like way before my time, but way before even my grandparents' time. It was this is like my great grandma would have been, you know, a child at the time most of these were coming out. So just the sense that these were old and, and had some kind of sense of history um, did, I think, make me treasure them more. And um, like they're still on display in my, my room at home. Um, I can attest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Surprised they're not here with you in LA. I have some here and I have some back home. I, like I said, I, there's a lot of them. Oh, so. I was just referring to the ones that were here that I saw on your shelf. Mm -hmm. There are even more. Oh yes. Yes. Okay, there, wow. there are many more. My mom just remodeled our house, including my room. So everything had to be redone and we had to have a conversation about mm -hmm. what, you know, <laughs> I had to like approve the bookshelf that was that they were going to go on and make sure that they were still going to be displayed in the room. 
there was something interesting about the fact that even the kind of material new objects that I treasured still kind of felt like an old object. But ordinarily, this would be the part of the episode where we give you some background on one Steven Allen Spielberg. But we've already done that in other episodes. And you could also just go watch The Fablemans, <laughs> which you should do if you haven't. So instead, I could give you some history about the state of Indiana. <laughs> Boo! <laughs> no. No, can you tell us about famous Joneses? I'd prefer that. Uh, they're hard to keep up with. <laughs> oh, that was good. <laughs> no, I will give you the history of the actual Indiana Jones, however, the, well, the character. not There is no actual Indiana Jones. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Oh, no, he wasn't real? Fuck. Not a biopic. Another childhood dream? Dead. The original version of the character was created in 1973 by George Lucas. That same year, he started writing Star Wars. Like Star Wars, Indiana Jones was intended to recreate the movie serials of the 30s and 40s he had enjoyed growing up. A series of about 12 to 15 short films that would play for one week in a theater and then end on a cliffhanger. So you had to come in and see the thrilling conclusion the next week. you know this what were the names of the characters that starred in those serials did they sound like indiana jones because it's a very unique name it was a very similar kind of naming convention in the same way that like you know sam spade and names like that were big in detective like in noir movies there was very much like you know over the top naming such as brick bradford hop harrigan chick carter detective and brenda (laughs) Starr, reporter I remember Brenda Starr. That was a big one. Other serials that were popular throughout this era included Jungle Jim, Congo Bill, The Secret of (laughs) Treasure Island, Mysterious Dr. Satan, Spy Smasher, King of the Mounties, Sky Raiders, Sea Raiders, Jungle Raiders, Raiders Raiders of Ghost City, (laughs) G-Men Never Forget, and so on, including some that you probably have heard of because we've seen them in other kind of media over the years. The Lone Ranger, The Green Hornet, Zorro, The Shadow, Flash Gordon, Dick Tracy, and Batman. That's right. Mm. So a lot of these characters obviously um, first popped up in comic books and then were adapted into serials and then later other things. I'm sorry, was it Bill of the Jungle? Congo Bill. Congo Bill. (laughs) Congo Bill. (laughs) Okay, we can move on. Congo Bill Smith. (laughs) I've made my point. We can move on. These were obviously a precursor to episodic TV. You know, these years were years before TV existed. So, you know, to have that kind of like weekly thrill, you had to go to the movie theater to have kind of the same experience that you would have like a decade or two later just at home on TV. There's There's nothing to fear here. That's what scares me. The film idea was originally developed with the director, Philip Kaufman, who decided to go do the movie The Right Stuff instead. It was Kaufman's idea to include The Ark of the Covenant. 
1977, George Lucas was in Hawaii recovering from Star Wars mania by building sandcastles with his good friend Steven Spielberg. <laughs> I want video footage. <laughs> yeah, is that in the Fablemans or not? <laughs> If not, I'm going to demand it's my in a ticket sequel. Money. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, we didn't get that far in there. Fableman's 2 on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> on the move. <laughs> <laughs> it's like an affair to remember, but with Spielberg and Lucas. <laughs> I'm sorry. Let's go back. Let's rewind. He was on. <laughs> in Hawaii. In Hawaii with Steven Spielberg making sandcastles. You know that Bill Withers song, Just the Two of Us? <laughs> that's about them. I mean, that's my preferred way of unwinding, too. Like, you know, you just call up Steve and be like, hey, you know, Maui, yes, castles, sure. Yeah. Spielberg had always wanted to make a James Bond movie, and Lucas said, I have a better idea. Not necessarily a direct quote, but probably. Indiana Smith. (laughs) Spielberg eventually changed the name because he did not like the name Indiana Smith. Because there was already a Nevada Smith. I think starring Steve McQueen, there was already a movie. The name Indiana came from Lucas's dog. Oh. They did name the dog Indiana. (laughs) (laughs) Named him after the dog. Yeah, that's a real joke. It's funny. Spielberg chose Lawrence Kasdan to write the script. Lucas wanted Jones to use kung fu moves and be a rich playboy, funding a lavish lifestyle with his treasures. Like James Bond. Spielberg wanted him to be an alcoholic gambler. Like James Bond. <laughs> <laughs> they eventually decided that Indiana Jones needed to be more of a role model for kids, so they went in neither of those directions, really. <laughs> this was also Spielberg's first film collaborating with Frank Marshall as producer. Spielberg set a budget of $40 million in 87 shooting days. He had been kind of reprimanded for going over budget and over schedule on some of his previous films, notably Jaws. They became kind of like stories in the press that kind of gave like negative publicity. So he was really determined not to do that again. So he secretly set out to make the movie cheaper and faster than even that schedule allowed. And he also thought that that would help capture the spirit of the serials more because those were also made relatively quick and cheap compared to like a feature film. So he did fewer takes than he normally would to capture spontaneity. He thought shooting quickly would help the movie also feel really fast-paced. And with this movie, he felt less ambitious with groundbreaking special effects. On Jaws and Close Encounters in 1941, he'd done a lot of things that were really ambitious and some special effects that you'd never seen before. And of course, those were expensive and, and ended up causing problems. So on this one, everything that he did, he felt was really attainable. He also felt like those previous movies were all kind of like film school for him and that Indiana Jones was when he finally had graduated and figured like he knew what he was doing making this movie and he didn't really have to like make anything up. Considered for the role of Indiana Jones were actors including Bill Murray, Nick Nolte, Steve Martin, Chevy Bill Chase. Bill Murray. They were really going in a comedy direction. Yeah. Peter Coyote, Tim Matheson, Jack Nicholson, Jeff Bridges, Sam Elliott, Harry Hamlin, and most notably Tom Selleck, who would have been wow. cast if CBS had not greenlit Magnum P.I., which they did in part because Lucas wanted him so badly. Wow. So they figured, hey, he must be a good thing. We, we want to make sure that we keep him. A writer strike then delayed Magnum P.I. and would have allowed Selleck to play the role after all. Aw, sorry, Tom. It's weird to think of Tom Selleck, like, actually having this role because I think of him as such a TV actor, you know? What would have been? I also think of him as super hammy. Like, I feel like he would have... I feel like he would have leaned into the comedy of it in a broader way. Yeah, I don't... Yeah, I don't... It's hard to see the movies working in the same way. Truly. But it's like, in a way, you just never know, because maybe 
he just would have been like what Harrison Ford is to us, kind of. Yeah, we you never know? know. Jeff Bridges actually seems like an interesting idea. Like I could kind of see that working of all those. I feel like he has the right kind of energy that I don't think that would have ruined the movie. I think he could have done it fine. But Harrison Ford was hot back then. Were all these actors hot back then? Jeff Bridges was pretty hot. <laughs> oh, yeah. Was Jeff he? Bridges was a babe. I don't remember. Okay. Your mileage may vary on Tom Selleck. <laughs> and not my thing, but... Yeah. <laughs> Bill Murray, not so much. Yeah. We'll talk about the tone of the movies, but that was really leaning hard into a different kind of tone. Mm-hmm. George Lucas was reluctant to cast Harrison Ford because he was already famous and he thought it would be better if... It was someone that the audience was discovering more and didn't have movie star baggage with them to a new franchise that was supposed to be like a character that you're like coming to new and fresh as the star of a serial. And also didn't think he would agree to do three movies because he was very clear that he wanted to make this like a series right away. So they knew from the start it's going to be three movies Mm -hmm. because it took quite a long time to get those three movies. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll get to why some of that happened in our next episode. For the role of Sala, Danny DeVito was approached to star but asked for too much money. <laughs> for the role of Marion, Amy Irving and Deborah Winger were both considered but turned it down. Was he married to Amy Irving or divorced from Amy Irving at this he point? He was dating Amy Irving but not married to her. And then he met Kate Capshaw. But then he married Amy Irving. Huh? And then he married Kate Capshaw. <laughs> Wait, what? Didn't he meet Kate Capshaw on set? Yes, but they didn't get married. I think they had a thing, but then he like reunited with Amy Irving after Oh, that. I didn't know that. Dirty yeah. Steven hopping bed to bed, <laughs> set to set. He's allowed to date. He's a dirty <laughs> dog, and someone ought to say it. Fablemans 2 will be very raunchy, according <laughs> to some. Karen Allen had made her debut in National Lampoon's Animal House in 1979 and had a couple of other film and TV appearances before her big break, which was this film. She had a lot of thoughts on her character and the script, most of which she was told there was no room for. Uh, Both she and Kasdan were disappointed with the final cut of the film, how it dramatically reduced her backstory and her dialogue. And Kasdan really liked the scene that he had written between her and Indiana Jones, which was cut down a lot in the final version to make way for action. Raiders of the Lost Ark opened in theaters June 12th, 1981, one year before E.T., minus one day, June 11th. It stars Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones, Karen Allen as Marion Ravenwood, John Rhys-Davies as Egyptian excavator Sala, Paul Freeman as rival archaeologist Belloc, Denham Elliott as Indiana's museum curator pal Brody, and Ronald Lacey as the villainous Nazi Major Tote. The film takes place in 1936 concerning Jones's quest to get the Ark of the Covenant a wooden chest covered in gold, which contained the stone tablets the Ten Commandments were written on, Hitler thought they would make his army invisible. Invincible. (laughs) Or invisible. (laughs) Honestly, who knows? Reviews at the time, one from Gene Siskel of the Chicago Tribune, said, Raiders of the Lost Ark is, in fact, about as entertaining as a commercial movie can be. What is it? An adventure film that plays like an old-time 12-part serial that you see (laughs) all at once, instead of Saturday to Saturday. It's a modern thief of Baghdad. It's the kind of movie that first got you excited about movies when you were a kid. Pauline Kael, writing for The New Yorker, said, Despite its daring surface, Raiders is timid movie making. The film seems terrified of not giving audiences enough thrills to keep them happy. It's an amalgam of Lucas's follies. There's nothing at stake in Raiders. No revelation, no surge of feeling at the end. The thrills are fully consumed while you're seeing the movie, and it's totally over when it's over. It's a workout. You feel as if you'd been to the desert digs. At the end, your mind is blank, yet you're parched. You're puffing hard. You want relief. <laughs> Ouch. I mean, that's that's pretty Pauline Kalish. 
Unfortunately, Pauline Kael's review really tainted the interest in Raiders of the Lost Ark. It bombed at the box office. And no I've one, never heard of it. <laughs> yeah, no one ever spoke of this movie. We are discovering it here on the podcast. We're like archaeologists, really, <laughs> if you think about it. I'm joking. The movie made $212 million domestically, $354 million in its original release altogether. It was released again in the summer of 82 and again in 1983, eventually earning back about 20 times its budget. And that is going in with, like, the audience had never heard of this movie and wasn't very excited about it. Over the summer, they were, like, excited about Superman 2 at the time. That was supposed to be the big summer movie, but Indiana Jones trumped it. It spent 40 weeks in the top 10, one of the, like, leggiest movies of all time. Look at the gams on that flick. (laughs) Boy, that franchise has got some stems on (laughs) <laughs> so it was the top grossing film of 1981, but can you guess what the number two film was? 81, 81. Um, was it a Star Wars movie? Nope. I don't know. 81. It wasn't like Amadeus, right? <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea. Total blank. On Golden Pond. <laughs> wow. I have no idea if that is a box office juggernaut, but here we are. Adjusted for inflation, it made $372 million. Holy shit. Which is more than the Batman grossed last year. Uh, wait, Indiana Jones or On Golden Pond? On Golden Pond. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> is this the On Golden Pond cast well, now? Well, the internet didn't exist then. There's nothing to do. <laughs> nothing to do but go see On Golden Pond. <laughs> if there were no internet, that's what we'd be doing right now. <laughs> we would be. We would be. Whenever I'll there's be a blackout, I just kind of repeat On Golden Pond in my head. <laughs> I make shadow puppets on the wall of Jane Fonda and Henry Fonda. Raiders also got eight Oscar nominations, winning four of those. Two for sound, plus art direction and editing, as well as a special achievement Oscar for visual effects. It was also nominated for Best Picture, losing to another film featuring lots of running and an iconic theme. Do you know what that was? Chariots of Fire. Yes. Ah, okay. So what is your history with Raiders of the Lost Ark and or the Indiana Jones character? When Raiders came out, I wasn't born yet. (laughs) Wow, brag much? (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm very young. So Last Crusade is the one that I had the most, like, consciousness (laughs) that it was, like, out. I think I was six when it came out. That was always my Indiana Jones movie, Um, although I did watch Temple of Doom fairly often. I had a giant puzzle in my house that was the Last Crusade poster. So I think because of how much time I spent looking at those characters... In that particular movie, (laughs) that became my favorite Indiana Jones movie. I rarely watched Raiders. I don't really even think I watched it at all growing up. Because if I was in an Indiana Jones mood, there are two other movies to watch. And that was the oldest one because it came out first. I was not a Raiders person at all. I think I maybe saw it once in my youth and then saw it again like in the Spielberg class. And and now I've seen it maybe like two more times since then. So let's just say maybe I've watched it like four or five times in my life. But it took a long time for me to... Like, I knew the opening scene very well just because it was so heavily in pop culture. But other than that, like, I could not tell you what that movie was about for a long time until I was much older. But my mom was a big fan of Indiana Jones growing up. And it was just, you know, it was pop culture. So, like, I knew him as a character probably from a young age. The biggest thing about Indiana Jones with me... There's two things. One was in seventh grade that the ride opened at Disneyland. And that was a big Mm, deal. mm -hmm. Uh, I remember... When I was in seventh grade, I flew to L.A. with my family and we went to Disneyland and I was waiting on that goddamn line for hours. And I had met my friend Heather from the Internet, who also knows (laughs) JTT. (laughs) 
That's how long ago this was. And we were just singing Mariah Carey's Daydream album the entire... <laughs> uh, we were just probably annoying everybody in line. There's a whole lot of pop culture in that sentence. <laughs> Honestly, there was so You covered much. movies, TV, <laughs> music. Like, you just like spat out a whole two other episodes. Beanie Babies, now. Snap Bracelets. <laughs> Pogs. And I remember we had to wait in line. It's the Indiana Jones ride. Like, you were very, very excited. So that was one giant thing, even more than the movie, I think. And the other one was, I was really into Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis, which is a role uh, RPG computer game. Because I was not really into video games growing up, but I was really into LucasArts RPG games. Yeah, LucasArts was huge. loved Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis. It came out in 1992. I was probably a little bit older when I started playing it. Have either of you played these kinds of games? Yes. Yes, you, yeah. but, no. but not you. For those that don't know, it's very like pixelated, but it's very like intricately pixelated. You can't really see their faces, but like it's very detailed. And it's just taking you on an Indiana Jones adventure. And you can actually play like with a woman who comes to join him, or you can play Indy alone. And you go on submarines and you are looking for Atlantis. And I played that so much. And I have so many fond memories of this that like during COVID, my husband re-downloaded it for me on Steam. And oh, I was playing and I played it again. And I was like, I am not a video game person at all, but like him buying these old games for me like day of the tentacle yes. and um sam and max and indiana jones and i was just like these games make me so happy and even like right before this podcast i'm looking at screen caps on google images and i was just like i'm so happy looking at these images of this game <laughs> yeah it's crazy to think about truly like lucas arts was one of the most popular and well-respected video game companies yeah. and developers for like 15 or 20 years I'm pretty sure they folded as a business a long time ago. Just, just so you know, you were not the only one. Did you play that game? No, I, di- I didn't play those games in particular. Like, I'm sure I played them, like, maybe once, but I didn't, like, own them and have them. But a lot of my friends were total devotees of all of those. They were one of the heaviest hitters, like, right up there with Nintendo and Sega. Yeah, so, I mean, we could do a LucasArts podcast, and I I would lead that one. But that was, like, Indiana Jones to me while I was a child. Like, that's what made me excited for them, is that I did enjoy those movies, but it was really the video game, I think, and the puzzle of the poster. The posters are great. And the ride. It was a, it ride. was an experiential uh, relationship you yeah, had. Yeah, it was a lot of things. It wasn't just the movie. What about you, Seth? So, like Becky, I grew up in an Indiana Jones household. <laughs> <laughs> is that a cave where you have to like <laughs> yeah. run from darts? Yeah, there would be a boulder that would chase me out of bed in the morning if I slept past my alarm. Yeah, my my whole family, both my parents, all my extended family, we all really loved the Indiana Jones movies. All three of these were absolutely home taped VHS tapes mm-hmm. that we like recorded off of HBO or whatever. So I saw all three of these movies a million times growing up. Becky, much like you, though, I have to say that this was, that Raiders of the Lost Ark was not so much, like, my Indiana Jones. It was not the one that I connected with the most. It wasn't the one I watched the most. I just watched the other ones a lot more often, and I'm not sure if that says so much about the movie as it does just about my taste as a kid. But either way, I just loved the character of Indiana Jones so much, the way that Much like Han Solo, another Harrison Ford banger of a character, 
he seemed like a bit of a scoundrel, what we would call now an anti-hero. You know, he just seemed super cool. I loved the fact that he was an archaeologist, that there was that kind of academic inclination to his character. Another thing I also really loved about him was the fact that he had and wielded a bullwhip. <laughs> so my dad got me two bullwhips. <laughs> I grew up having bullwhips. <laughs> now, the ones that I had were not quite as heavy duty as the ones that Indiana Jones wielded. The ones that he had seemed to be about 20 feet long, and the handles on them seemed by themselves to be at least like a foot and a half or maybe even two feet long. And like the handle of mine was about a foot long, and the whole thing was about probably 10 to 12 feet long max. And both whips were identical. I never gained much skill. I never became a cattle wrangler. I never... No, that's not true. I did I did whip at least a couple <laughs> of cousins here and there. They but deserved it. I promise I whipped myself more often than anyone else. Did you break things? <laughs> Fewer than you would imagine. So I lived in a house full of antiques, <laughs> like literally floor to ceiling antiques. So I knew that those belonged in a museum and that it would be real bad, real, real bad if I broke any of those. So no, I kept my whipping confined to like the sunroom where there weren't any antiques or flower pots or anything or Did the you backyard. Get a scar on your chin from whipping? No, okay. I, I, no, I have a scar underneath my mouth, but that was for falling off a nightstand as a baby <laughs> and not for whipping myself. You should tell people it's from. <laughs> I really should. I was fighting a lion. Yeah. So I had bull whips. I had, you know, Indiana Jones' main weapon. It was like his lightsaber, basically. And with that, I felt really connected to that character and more connected to the sense of kind of swashbuckling adventure that it implied, you know, because really an another of my favorite things about the bullwhip was always that he could like swing Spider-Man-like to and fro using the bullwhip. So that was definitely involved in a lot of my kind of play acting of the whip. And I don't think I really had any of the Indiana Jones video games. I'm sure there were like games on the old Nintendo and on Game Boy. And I might have had one for Game Boy, but that would have been about it. I also went to the Indiana Jones ride, but at Disney World in Florida. Mm -hmm. So I saw that like Indiana Jones stunt spectacular at least a couple times and love oh, the hell out of that. Oh, as and the a kid. stunt spectacular. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure I wore my red boots that day. <laughs> you know, like it was definitely like again, just very experiential. You didn't bring your bullwhip, though, because I assume <laughs> that that would be a weapon and frowned upon bringing into the Magic Kingdom. Yeah, even in the pre-9-11 era, they did not look kindly upon bringing BDSM tools into <laughs> the Disney World parks. <laughs> oh, I was allowed my nipple clamps. Well, those go on under the shirt. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I feel really left out that I didn't have <laughs> excess materials, that these were just <laughs> movies to me. Wow. Yeah, I have a less extensive history with these movies, I think, than you guys do. I always equate Indiana Jones with two other trilogies, Star Wars and Back to the Future, all of which were just trilogies back then, although most of them have grown since. For the most part, these weren't movies that I owned and watched at home, but I would see them like when I went to other people's houses, all three of those trilogies. So th th that's really my experience with all of those. And n none of them 
were particularly close to me, at least when I was pretty young. To me, those three series all just feel like requirements of an 80s childhood, basically. Mm -hmm. Like, it's like the homework you have to do. I think they're part of the American school curriculum at this point. (laughs) And Indiana Jones, I think, in a way, is like the broadest of them, because Star Wars maybe skewed more toward boys. Like, I didn't know a lot of girls who liked it at the time. I think that's changed a little bit now. Back to the Future had some slightly mature, more mature themes, so, like, it wasn't the most young kid movie. But Indiana Jones felt even more ubiquitous, and especially in Spielberg's filmography. You might put on E.T. when you're, like, in a certain, like, emotional mood, but it's also a little scary for kids. I don't know. These movies just felt like they were always like easy to put on, could please anyone. And so they would be put on a lot of times. And yet, out of all of those movies, this one has a lot of murder. True. <laughs> I don't think parents <laughs> thought about of, it. Like a lot of r- really adult themes. <laughs> like really, really adult themes. <laughs> like Nazism. <laughs> yeah. That wasn't even the one I was thinking of, but yeah. Yeah, I don't think you're wrong, I, but I think that people forget about that stuff. Mm-hmm. That's true. <laughs> so. Absolutely. So, like, I don't know. These movies have always felt like kind of an obligation to me. Like I, like, I feel like as a fan of Spielberg in general and just, like, a child who grew up when I did, I'm almost obligated to like them okay. and, and know them. And whether or not I do, I think, tends to fluctuate a lot. So I don't really have that specific of any kind of story like you guys had with a particular one of these. In the next episode, I'll talk a little bit specifically about one of the movies that I had a a slightly bigger connection to. But in general, like Raiders, you know, I saw it. I saw all these movies. I don't think I really differentiated them that much. To me, like Indiana Jones was just like one movie where I would probably come into the room and it was like halfway over. And so I didn't even know which action set piece went with which movie necessarily. It's never been like my favorite franchise, even though it's always been obviously a big part of culture. What does this arc look like? There's a picture of it right here. That's it. Good God. Yes, that's just what the Hebrews thought. Uh, now what's that supposed to be coming out of there? Lightning. Fire. Power of God or something. You're beginning to understand Hitler's interest in this. Oh, yes. The Bible speaks of the ark leveling mountains and laying waste to entire regions. An army which carries the ark before it is invincible. So let's talk about what we think about Raiders of the Lost Ark now. So I feel like I might hurt a lot of our fans' feelings. Oh, no. I feel like I'm not allowed to say this. I'm underwhelmed by this movie. And I'm not I'm not joking. It's Less than whelmed? <laughs> okay, I think that this movie is amazing in parts. And so influential, so iconic in parts. But there are other parts of this movie that just don't interest me much, even as an adult. And they're so it's so silly, and it's over very quickly. And for me, it's not as memorable 
as a whole as the other two movies for better or worse which we'll get into next episode but i feel like i'm not allowed to say this <laughs> because no nope, cut, cut it out <laughs> because it's spielberg it's a raiders of the lost ark which most people are like obsessed with as far as like this kind of movie is concerned like they consider it like the pinnacle of like the action adventure and i'll tell you that i think the opening is perfect you know whoever came up with the fact that he's wearing that exact hat jacket and whip like they get a raise <laughs> Because perfect, like as far as like introducing a character and just being in pop culture from then on, like that's hard to do. And I think that he's worth being as popular as he is because it's just such a great introduction to this character. I think Harrison Ford plays him fantastically. But just as much as some sequences in this movie are so great, I just feel a little underwhelmed, which doesn't mean that I think that it's like bad, but I just like I walk away kind of like not caring. And I think part of that might be not seeing it with a big audience. I think this movie would very much benefit seeing it in a big audience and people going woo and like, yeah, and cheering. And, and also on a gigantic screen with super loud surround speakers. Gigantic screen. And it's not like I was distracted. Like, I watched this when my kids went to bed. Like, I was watching it. But I think it benefits with that. And I got more thoughts, but except. Becky, I must join you in saying the forbidden. (laughs) (laughs) Uncovering the buried truth that Raiders of the Lost Ark simply isn't as great as the other movies to me. I've seen it a lot more times since I was a kid. I appreciate it a lot more now as an adult, especially the economy with which the story is told, especially the the way it kind of operates on rails. Like, all these movies are very episodic, and it's very much in the mold of a serial to where there's, you know, every 10 minutes or so, there's a guaranteed cliffhanger or a huge action sequence. I loved, Becky, like you did, the opening sequence of this. I I feel like it set it up perfectly, introduced us immediately to who Indiana Jones is as both a mythic figure and as a person. I do appreciate that this movie begins a convention that's continued in the other ones that we'll talk about more later of like intentionally setting up and laying out the plot of the rest of the movie at around the 20 minute mark. I appreciate the formal elements of this movie and the formal elements of the set pieces and the action sequences a lot more than I enjoy the way that they're executed. I do think, Chris, to what you had said, you can tell how much they cut back the character of Marion Ravenswood. It's threadbare. She's barely on the screen. She has like a great opening scene. A fantastic. And then, and then you a never fantastic really get opening more. scene. And opens cans of worms that I think a more interesting version of this movie would have gone into a little bit. But you can very much tell that Spielberg and Lucas were united on the front of making this as much of a thrill ride as they possibly could. So I don't really fault you know, Pauline Kael, the the godmother of all film criticism, like, I totally see where her criticisms are kind of well-founded. I, you know, enjoyed watching most of it. I think there are parts that are fantastic. There are high points. I do enjoy Sala, that character, a lot. But I do think that this movie's a bit less than the sum of its parts. And, you know, in the fullness of time, like, I appreciate it more than I geek out or am thrilled watching it. And Becky, I do agree with you absolutely that it would be much better in a full theater. Huh. Oh, no! Oh, no, Chris's face is melting like it's a wax candle. (laughs) Did you look in the arc? Did you look? 
I thought I was going to be the Nazi supervillain of this episode. <laughs> We're all Nazis in this episode. <laughs> I feel like this movie puts me in a strange position because I think it's a very good in a lot of ways. But I also think it's kind of overrated. Guys! Wow. What is this We take happening? a hiatus and we reach unanimity? What is happening but here? But also, like, negative for a classic? Yeah, united in yeah. negativity. This is a bold new turn for the wow. Women Reong podcast. So I hope that you enjoyed the fact that we're back and now canceled. <laughs> <laughs> We've reunited and there's now a hit out against us. I feel like we knew and that's why it took seven years to get to it. <laughs> right. Well, a lot of people rank this as Spielberg's, like, best film. Yeah, I think that's insane. I do, too. Um, it's not <laughs> even in my top ten, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. same. It's on the AFI list of the, of the 100 greatest movies ever made. To be fair, there are a lot of Spielberg movies on there, so it's not like they're leaving everything very, else It was off. very influential and it was very iconic, and I feel like they give a lot of leverage to movies like that. that sure, that and list. big hits, obviously. It was the Best Picture nominee at the time, and I get a little tired of hearing how perfect and wonderful it is. <laughs> and so it makes me want to, like, nitpick it, even though I don't have, like, really negative things to say about it. No, let's nitpick it. <laughs> well, I mean, that's what, I guess that's what we're here for. Let's own it, Chris. <laughs> there are a couple nits that need picking here, let's be honest. <laughs> Starting with just like me personally is like it doesn't have what I personally go to a movie for mostly. It's all action, no story, by which I mean there's nothing really like larger that it's trying to say. There really aren't any stakes in it emotionally at all for really any of the characters. Just does he have an arc in this? And I know, oh my God, it's yeah, lost. Yeah. Sorry, it's lost. <laughs> oh my God, Becky, come on. You know what I mean? Does he? Does he learn? We mean or arc change? with a C, not with a K. Yeah. Yeah. It's not about anything besides its plot, and almost all of the dialogue is explaining why things are happening or where they're going next. There's not very many exchanges that are fueled by like emotion or just like hangout scenes, kind of. I, I think of the scene with Marianne when he meets her in what is it, Nepal or something. Where, where are they? I believe, yeah, Nepal. Yeah, yeah. And, and that, it's expositiony, but it's like their relationship is being discussed. Mm -hmm. And you get the sense that time has passed outside of the running time of this one movie. Yeah, like he didn't just walk into the movie and exist, like it begins has to, a yeah, life. Exactly. And yeah, there really isn't a character arc or even a character for Indiana Jones. Like I think his main trait is that he doesn't like snakes. <laughs> like Harrison Ford's performance is great and I do agree with what you said about like just setting up a character that can carry a franchise and like you like Indiana Jones so it's not that it's like a bad character but there's also not a lot to his character especially after the opening 20 minutes where you kind of see that he is professor you get a little bit of like what his daily life would be like just his students want to hump him <laughs> yeah the action scenes are so long <laughs> with so little like actually happening like changing like they're not really raising the stakes a lot like the action is kind of for action's sake but not very much changes by like the end of the scene it's just like oh we've got to get away and they get away you know it but it takes a long like, time like it feels like they're almost all shoe leather in that way like i totally agree with you they're wait what do you mean shoe leather shoe leather is when you see on screen when the character is walking from point a to point b rather than just showing the character in point a and then cutting and then he's at point b because mm -hmm. you know in your head that character has moved from that one place to another you didn't need to see him walking that entire distance okay so to what chris is saying the rhythm of the action sequences is very repetitive and stays at the same like fever pitch volume of 
you know, kind of grand scale. And that makes it feel like it's kind of flat and just, you know, extenuated, just extended for action's sake. I, I totally agree with that, Chris. Yeah, so I end up getting kind of bored during the second half of this movie in particular. Like yes. I, wa- I put it on again this morning because I needed a refresher, honestly, even though I just watched it because there's so much action that I, I get confused about what is in what movie. Where does it start to lose you? What's the scene? I think it's like when Marion's captured and then there's a couple scenes after that that are still good. Like I like when she's like drinking with the guy in the tent and mm-hmm. trying to escape. There's a couple things, but especially when they're escaping from that situation, there's like the very long truck chase. That is very long, yeah. And then there's a pretty long fight with, like, the guy on the plane, which I think is actually before that. The big ball guy. And there's just a lot of that. And then, like, from there, there's not that much that happens in the rest of the movie. And also, I I think another element of that and the repetitiveness is that there aren't really any stakes to the quote-unquote bad guys of this movie. Even when they have names, they're pretty much interchangeable, faceless Nazis or swarthy-looking foreign dudes. Oh, boy, can we talk about the main Nazi? (laughs) I don't know his name. His name is Tote. Tote? T-O-H-T. Okay, so he is the weirdest (laughs) looking guy. I didn't remember how truly strange this guy looks. He looks wrong. (laughs) He looks a lot to me now like... Christopher Lloyd in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yeah, but like, oh. but like, but like, with the dip melting off him. Or yes, something. he he came out of the dip. He like, came out of Toontown. Like he's so. When you dip, he dips. We dip. <laughs> Good evening, Fräulein. The bar is closed. We are. We are not thirsty. What do you want? The same thing your friend Dr. Jones wanted. Surely he told you there would be other interested parties. Must have slipped his mind. The man is nefarious. I hope for your sake he has not yet acquired it. Why, are you willing to offer more? Oh, almost certainly. He's such a weird, strange-looking person that at the end, when his face literally is melting off, it doesn't look that different. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's a good look on you. <laughs> Honestly, it was a glow up. It was a glow up. There was a shot of him with his hat off and he had the weirdest bald spot. Do you recall this? I feel like I'm going to have to Is find a photo. A spot? No, it's like, it's like, like, like no. baldness, but not like, it looks so strange. Also, he's just completely one note. Like there's no levels there. Well, he's I... just completely one note villain. I was going to say, like, I thought he was great casting because he is very memorable and creepy. That was good casting, He's memorable, but, like, the character itself is just, like, a complete, you know, paper-thin villain. I think, like, a lot of things in this movie has a great entrance, like Marion does, like Indiana Jones does. And all, even Indiana Jones, I think, kind of, like, falls off in the second half from, like, I mean, obviously there's a lot of action he's doing, but he's not doing much, like, to affect even the plot. And... I think that's the same thing with this guy is like he looks like a scary villain that he's going to do really bad. And they even kind of make that joke where he has like something that he takes out and then it ends up being a coat hanger. That was the weirdest joke. I feel like I knew that was going to happen because I've seen this movie before. But this time I was just like, hold up. (laughs) Like, what is that joke? 
Why is it a coat hanger? But I, th- I think that's funny. But I think that you also ideally would give him a moment where he does do something really horrendous that you remember him by or that you give him a clear motivation. I think a big part of the problem is that there's nothing personally at stake for Indiana Jones. He just wants to get this thing to not have the Nazis get it. And it's kind of vague what happens if the Nazis do get it. And it's like Hitler is technically kind of like the villain because we don't want mm-hmm. Hitler to get this thing. But Hitler's not in the movie. And so this guy is kind of representing Hitler, but even he doesn't do anything that bad. Like, what, right. if you didn't know what Nazis are, like, if, if somehow you just, like, skipped, you know, history class. Or you were a little kid. Yeah, like, I mean, even I think little kids kind of get it, but it's like, you know that these are bad guys, it's obvious, but you don't know why or how. And so it's all on the audience to kind of fill in the fact that these are very, very bad people and that if they get this, you know, who knows, they would use it for the Holocaust or something like that. But that's not mentioned here. Yeah, I feel like we should put an even finer point on it. And I haven't really thought of it this way until now, but thinking about it, I'm uncomfortable with the degree to which all of these movies kind of make the Nazis seem a lot more like just incompetent buffoons than strategic and methodical mass murderers. Yeah. And I hadn't really thought of that until what you were just saying now, Chris. But the more I think about it, the worse it sits with me. The way that they kind of just invoke the most surface level symbolism of Nazism, just literally the word Nazi itself, the swastika, and the weird over-the-top Germanness, Germanitude. But they don't give that any of the literal weight that that would have in the real world. And to me, that does kind of feel like it's cheapening the meaning of those things as symbols. I think it's hard because this movie is made for families that getting into the exact deeds that the Nazis have done is making it really the tone less fun and more dramatic and horrific. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's deliberate, that you just know Nazis equal bad and that's all you need. At least that's what I would think that's they're thinking oh, no absolutely no doubt like i i no i think you nailed it i think that's exactly how they thought of it i just think that why i'm seeing it this way is just the the times that we're in now where the sentiments behind those symbols are kind of on the march again in this country and worldwide, really. Watching things like this makes me think of the ways that that imagery and the ways that invoking that as kind of a faceless enemy, it's not like this movie does anything to excuse Nazism or anything like that. Like, far be it. Like, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just thinking it's interesting now to look back on the way that these things were kind of turned into easy cultural references. When I think that they could have just as easily picked other bad guys who had, you know, more fully formed motivations behind them. You know, because another thing I found really weird kind of re-watching all these movies now is that I never really thought about the kind of more anti-hero side of Indiana Jones and the way that it's at least inferred a lot in the first movie that he's stolen artifacts for himself or at least done it for more dubious means. Yeah, can we talk about that? Because this was surprising to me because when I think of Indiana Jones, I think of a very smart professor altruistic, saying it belongs in a museum, like you can't steal it for your own gain. Like the world is owed this artifact. But is that him? (laughs) Am I wrong? Because, and in some of the other later movies too, isn't he like stealing things and giving it to bad guys? Like not to jump ahead, but in Temple of Doom, doesn't it start off with him giving like the Chinese mafia guy some artifact and he only like 
yeah. you know, fights him when the, the mafia guy tries to double cross him. Like he was just a guy for hire. Exactly. Right? Well, I do think that the first movie puts that anti-hero element a little bit more at the forefront and that in the other two movies that he becomes more of a kind of comic book superhero mm-hmm. type of image. But rewatching especially this first one, like it really occurred to me the way that they, again, I think intentionally avoid delving into his less savory aspects, but they make a lot more references to it. Mm -hmm. And to me, a much more interesting version of these movies would grapple with that and grapple with what it means to steal artifacts. Because look, also, Indiana Jones talking about how this quote-unquote belongs in a museum, most of the artifacts that are in most of the West's museums are stolen artifacts that were taken from the indigenous people who created those artifacts. So, like, there's a whole history of colonialism and plunder and theft and exploitation and, to say nothing of, like, genocide. And obviously, in a family movie, you couldn't go into all of those subjects. But in a movie that's about a guy who steals artifacts, Mm -hmm. you absolutely could have gone more into that subject. And you wouldn't have to make him a horrible supervillain or a bad guy to do it. But I just thought that would have been really interesting to go into. And they, again, they make reference to these interesting and intriguing things that would really deepen all of the characters and deepen and make more complicated all of their relationships and raise the stakes of them. And they just don't. They just make references to it and then go on to the next action sequence. I think there's a good devil's advocate argument to make to a lot of these criticisms. I kind of share like both sides. I have some of these same thoughts and these are some of the things that hold me back from like loving this movie as much as a lot of people do. But like while I was researching these movies and thinking about what the intentions were in recreating these serials. So like Nazis were the de facto bad guy and were very generic in all kinds of 40s movies onward. And they weren't really fleshed out at all. And also, like, the generation that watched those, and even in 1981, people would have been so familiar with that stuff that I don't think they needed the refresher as much as it feels like watching it 40 years later, it might help to have more context. Well, and also the exact audiences that they were going after with these movies, like the adult audiences that they were going for, were the people who, as kids, saw the serials in theaters. And a lot of those, you know, were... If not directly funded by the government, they were helping in the American propaganda Mm -hmm. effort in World War II. So that does make a lot of sense. I get that. And I think with the museum stuff and all the cultural stuff, I think like these movies are very much trying to emulate like the spirit of those that don't take any of that seriously and don't take a lot of stuff. And and I think even the fact that the characters are kind of thin, as even Indiana Jones is kind of a thin character. The you know, the villains are thin. There's not a lot of like story, character arc, any of that. I think all of that you can say is very much a conscious choice because they're trying to emulate this thing where you would watch 15 minutes of this movie and then, you know, like kind of come back to it next week. And that's kind of the structure that they built into it. So I don't think it's that like Lawrence Kasdan, for example, was like unaware of these things. And I think he tried to build more this stuff in like the Indiana Jones character is darker I read a little bit of the script and he has like he's having an affair with a student in like the early scenes that obviously is not in the in the final movie 
So there are more things that make it feel more like a movie with with characters. But I think the intent of it for Spielberg and Lucas was very much like this is a ride, a fun thing, something that's not meant to be taken seriously. And we're not going to examine any of the things that we might examine if this were like a movie that we had different kind of intentions for. My experience watching it this time was, like I said, I was very surprised by him not being as perfect as I remember him. But also, like, he doesn't really like Marion. <laughs> okay, so he breaks her heart in the past where we don't see, but they mention it. Also, it seems like he was her teacher because she says, I was just a kid. And he only goes to her because he's looking for her dad. Abner. Yeah, yeah, Abner. But he's not there. It's just her. So it's not like he is like, I got to go see Marion at my, my long lost love. Then he repeatedly chooses artifacts over her and her well-being. And then he also, when they do have like a romantic moment, he falls asleep while she's kissing him. I'm like, he doesn't really like her. Which is like, you think that this is like some grand love story between these two like star-crossed people or whatever. Like, no, he doesn't really care about her. And I was very surprised by that this time. Because in my memory, it's like, oh, they're meant to be or something. Not the man I knew 10 years ago. It's not the years, honey. It's the mileage. Please, I don't need a nurse. I just want He's to sleep. He's such a baby. Marion, Go away. Yes. It hurts. Wow. Well, goddammit, anywhere doesn't it hurt? Here. Here. It's like he does see women as objects, but he sees artifacts as more important objects. <laughs> but yeah, I do think we need to like just briefly hover over the implications of the relationship they had. Yeah. Because in that scene, their dialogue, and of course we'll put the audio clip of this in there, but like she very directly implicates him in uh, having had a sexual relationship with her when she was a kid. Which is probably a teenager, but yeah. I read a little bit of this. I know that I didn't do nearly as much homework as Chris did, but I I read a little bit about this, and really what they wanted it to be was that she was 15 or 16 at the oldest. Lucas wanted her to be young, and other people talked him out of that. Um, I think you can only go with what's in the actual movie because that was, you know, cut out. So I feel like the dialogue more like implies that, yeah, she was like a, a teenager, maybe a couple years underage, maybe not. Like, who knows? And whatever country they were in, we're, we're not really sure, like, what, mm. what the laws are there. But, yeah, I mean, I think to me that scene more just means I was young and naive and you were more experienced and she thinks he took advantage of her. Power, yes. There's a power imbalance. Yeah. Indiana Jones. <sighs> Always knew someday you'd come walking back through my door. I never doubted that. Something made it inevitable. So what are you doing here in Nepal? I need one of the pieces your father collected. I learned to hate you in the last 10 years. I never meant to hurt you. I was a child. I was in love. It was wrong and you knew it. 
You knew what you were doing. Now I do. This is my place. Get out. Mohan, Demigru, Bulianu. I did what I did. You don't have to be happy about it, but maybe we can help each other out now. I need one of the pieces your father collected. Bronze piece about this size with a hole in it off center with a crystal. You know the one I mean? Yeah. I know it. Where's Abner? Where's Abner? Abner's dead. Again, kind of to my point earlier, I do think that that goes a lot further toward making him seem like an anti-hero than like just a full-on comic book do-gooder. Yeah, which I which I thought he was. I thought he was like, you know, a hot guy, so he got with girls. I was not expecting the, uh, I was just a kid. And him just like not giving a shit about her. <laughs> yeah, and I totally agree with you on that point too. Like I, I especially just like rewatching it now, like he really does just truly not give a fuck if she lives or dies. And I like the character of Marion a lot. I wish that she had had more in this movie. Chris, you mentioned earlier that scene where she's like drinking with her captor, trying to get one over on him to like make her escape. I loved that. I wanted that to keep going. Like I wish the movie had just had the balls to take a break from the indie show for a second. Yeah, I love how Marion's superpower is drinking. <laughs> yes. We meet her and she's like out drinking this kind of burly man. Then when she's in a fight scene, she like takes a shot of whiskey like that's pouring out of a bullet hole while she's like mm-hmm. running for her life. And then later like uses drink to kind of get her captor drunk and then get away from him. And it fits because she owns that bar that Indy meets her in. Like, I again, it's like I feel like this movie would have been so much better with whatever it was with Marion that they cut out. Yeah, I don't think I really see him as not caring about her. He does think she dies for a while, and he's pretty upset about that. Is he pretty upset? He leaves her to die a few times because he's like, the artifact. Yeah, he's like drowning his sorrows (laughs) in in drinking after she dies. He says something to Sala that's like, oh, like, you know, Marion's dead. Like, he's upset. (laughs) I don't remember it. You're allowed to feel how you feel, but I just wanted to bring up that there are other scenes that kind of at least try and make it seem otherwise but i agree i think like the film comes alive with karen allen when she arrives and i think the scenes that she's in for the most part are the best scenes of the movie beyond like the opening they elevate all of it to me they like she really is a presence on screen with him and i think she's such a delight like as a performer i think she just has this charisma she has a nice smile she's confident but and like what you would expect in this movie and what we might mention about later indiana jones (laughs) films um, i don't know what you're talking about is that she's not like just the girl she's not like just there to be in danger and to like scream she gets herself out of a lot of trouble she often saves his life she feels so like modern like you could write her in a movie today and she would be the same person which is not what you often Mm -hmm. see of like biggest female character in a action movie of the like 70s 80s like when this movie was being made she's rare because like her smile is the smile that says i know how full of shit you are indiana jones Mm -hmm. and like most of the people who smile at him are not smiling at him for that reason like there's a knowingness to her character that doesn't really exist for almost any other women in this whole universe and she's beautiful but she's not like there to look sexy and they they don't really like emphasize like her kind of do with the outfits that she later wears they put her in a white dress which i guess is a requirement for these well one of them i think that they make her wear a certain dress and then she finds like a slip somewhere i was like where did that come from i don't know i i always i felt like it just made sense for whatever she was going through like i didn't ever feel like it was there just 
just to kind of have her be gawked at for a moment. And a lot of movies like this, I feel like, have kind of like fake feisty women where, you know, they act feisty, but then they end up just being kind of helpless. And to me, like, it felt like very natural that like she has this backstory where she's like a bar owner and she's like seen a lot of rough stuff. Like you can just tell that she's really lived and she's not this sort of delicate character who just like can't figure it out. But like, it's not a put on for her. It's like she feels like she really earned like the toughness that she then displays later in the movie. Indiana Jones kills so many people in this franchise. Like, straight up just murders people. Like, some of it is in defense, but not always. There's clearly parts where he could, like, get away. I mean, the best one I think that people think of is the guy with the, the knives. Oh, that, yeah. And then he just shoots him. And, of course, it's a great moment. It's a great moment in, in cinema history. It's per- yeah. But it's just, like... I think I was just surprised by, like, he is just murdering people throughout this whole franchise. Just a serial killer and college <laughs> professor. This is a family-friendly, quote-unquote, movie. And in movies like this, like Batman or something, he just punches them and they go down. You don't see them getting shot or pushed off a boat or just, like, straight-up murdered. <laughs> yeah, but I also think, again, you're comparing that to the Tim Burton Batman wasn't until 1989. Like, I also do think that that very much much was the thing where the cultural standards about depicting death on screen changed over time. I do think that the bar for what constituted appropriate family-friendly movie violence changed over the decades. Yeah, I think he still kills people in Crusade. Just a surprise. I think coming away from this, I was just surprised by a lot that I had gotten wrong about my memories of this movie. Yeah, there was a big difference between my kind of like generalized nostalgic remembrance of it versus rewatching the actual thing. Oh, he says, holy shit at one point. And I was like, what did he just say? Like, again, I thought he was, like, a superhero, like, a role model for kids, and he's, like, cursing in this movie. It was not alarming. It was just, it was just surprising. Like, don't think that's in the new Indiana Jones movie. Yeah, I mean, human life, the concept of it is pretty cheap in these movies, and I think it goes along with kind of the stakes, because one of the things that I think is kind of ironic is that these movies are based on those serials that supposedly left everyone in such suspense at the end of every, you know, 15 minutes. Like, they would always end with someone, like, dangling off a cliff. That's where the term cliffhanger comes from. And it's like, how are they going to get out of this? And you would have to wait a week. And someone, I think, involved in making these movies, like, described that as, like, you would, like, if you were a kid back then, you would really spend, like, all week thinking, like, oh my god, what are they going to do? And, like, puzzling it out. And in this movie, all of these movies really, like, you never feel much of a sense of suspense for these characters. Like, you don't actually think Marion or Indiana Jones is gonna die. Like, even when Marion supposedly does die, did anyone actually, like, buy that? Like, I don't think so. Because there's, these movies just don't have the sense that someone we like could die. You know, it's like, the bad guys die very quickly and kind of cheaply, but there's no sense that anyone good, like, even could die. Like, it's not like a lot of these movies would kill off a main character anyway, because that's just not something that happens usually in like a kind of family-ish friendly film but at least in a lot of them you feel some kind of stakes and I feel like you don't actually feel that suspense in this movie and what I also find that's kind of missing as a Spielberg movie is like a sense of awe which he does so well in so many of his movies and making characters relatable I mean like movies like E.T. and Jaws and Jurassic Park I care so much because I'm invested in their personal stories and I'm sort of feeling shocked and scared through them like he's 
so good. Like that Spielberg shot of someone mm-hmm. either frightened or kind of in awe of something. Like, you know, it's a mirror for the audience to then, like, that you feel that kind of same sense. And Indiana Jones isn't, like, a relatable person. And really no one is. Like, you, you don't have that sense of, oh, I'm, like, this person. Like, this is where I would be in this story. Like, it all feels like it's happening kind of in this its own universe that, like, I don't know. I guess I find it more alienating than a lot of his movies. And also, I don't think the movies, it's not like they look bad, but it doesn't have, like, the kind of iconic shots or, like, even, like, effects that I'm like, wow, like, I haven't seen that before. Like, the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park or the aliens in the various alien movies. Like, they're usually so creatively designed and it's, like, beyond maybe, like, the opening temple scene with the the giant boulder, obviously, is very iconic. There's not a lot, like, in this movie where I'm like, that looks great or, you know, like, I want to see that, that shot was very, again. And that was very much on purpose, like, in some of the reading that I did yeah. a couple of days ago. Like, I saw that, like, Spielberg especially really set out intending not to reinvent the wheel with anything and not to, like have to invent totally new animatronics for a shark or anything like that. Yeah, but that shit at the end was bad. <laughs> the the face melting like effects do not hold up and did they even work then? I think they were supposed to be kind of goofy. Like were I I, they? I think they're supposed No, I th- I th- absolutely think they're supposed to be not goofy, but, like, visibly handmade. Like, in the same sense of, like, a Ray Harryhausen movie, like, from the from the way back. See, to me, it didn't, it, that didn't work because everything else is just so serious in that sequence and it just breaks the tension, I feel like, of, like, oh, this looks so stupid. I don't think it breaks the tension. I think it's, I think it suitably comes about as the exclamation mark of that sequence, you know, because you're supposed to believe that Indy and Marion are hanging on for dear life in the face of that. And yeah, but I don't believe it because the goofy skeleton face melting effects (laughs) are comically bad, I think. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that goes with like the what the expectations for these movies have become versus what they were intended to be. And I think what they were received as at the time, because so many people who saw them at the time who were either adults who had seen the serials and knew what they were referencing and were enjoying that sense of fun, like the recreation of it. Um, Or kids who, you know, aren't sophisticated enough generally to like, they're going to enjoy these effects because they don't want to see a realistic face melting. They want to see a fun face melting, you know, like this is the kind of horror it's horrific, but it's not like horror, you know, it's like kids, a lot of kids have seen these movies. I don't think a lot of kids are traumatized by seeing these images as horrific as they are. And it's funny because like in retrospect now, this perfectly seems like a Disney movie. This very much fits in with the whole ethos of of the Disney ecosystem, you know, where you know the good guys aren't going to die or really even be all that hurt. You know that the bad guys, faceless and generic as they are, are going to die very easily and be vanquished by the hero. You know everything's going to kind of reset at the end and you'll be able to get off the ride safe and sound. It does end also with a literal deus ex machina, like... (laughs) <laughs> which for anyone who doesn't know the term is basically like the hand of God, like coming in and, you know, kind of solving a problem in the end of the movie without like our heroes, like actually being the catalyst for it. And it, it's just like, like the ending is just kind of, oh, okay. I guess they opened the box and I guess God decided to like, like that, melt them all. That would have been fine for a scene near the end where maybe that gets rid of a lot of the Nazis, but then there's like, whoever's the big bad, the hero's, have to defeat them because yeah i felt like it was over way too quickly and 
it really hurts that Marion and Indiana Jones aren't the ones that save the day. They just survive the day. They're literally tied up. Like, they can't even move. Yeah, they survive the day. Like, there should have been one extra thing at the end that they're responsible for, like, teaming up together. And it's a very underwhelming ending. And I think that's why, even though I liked a lot, I feel like I'm being more negative than this movie even probably deserves. But because it ended, I think, really underwhelming, that I just left feeling underwhelmed. I see what you mean. I think Deus Ex Machina is a bit more warranted in this movie with this particular story than it would be in almost any other circumstance. Because it literally is Deus. Because it literally is. Yeah. You know, they're opening that Pandora's box. At the same time, I do totally agree, Becky, that I I think that if the head honcho, Christopher Lloyd, Nazi, (laughs) had survived or had slipped away. Or the other evil guy that, was he American or he was a different, British? Right. Yeah, Belloc. French. French? Yeah, like, or they have to get away from him and they defeat him. Yeah. Uh, You know, I do like the idea of the bad guys being defeated only by their own hubris and their own greed in wanting to harness that much power. That is the one sense in which I think that the invocation of Nazis is appropriate here. Like, that's the one, like, tiny thread connecting that to making any sort of dramatic sense and having any dramatic weight to it. Mm-hmm. But I totally agree with you that the the way that Marion and Indy are literally tied up and blindfolded just makes them not even passive observers <laughs> to the way that this story resolves. They're like passive non-observers. Yeah, and I think that goes to, Chris, you talked about like that look of awe. Like, I mm. think that Indy has that look of awe when he's got the staff and like the sun is coming. But like at the end... Neither of them can even literally look. So right. you're like missing that moment of them being like, oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. And I th- I think it would have worked better if we had a sense of exactly what was being prevented by this happening. Like, I, it, I think the mechanics of just what the arc is and can do, like, are confusing. Like, I'm not really sure what happens if, like, why does Hitler think it will help him if actually it will melt all of his people. Right. Did they get the wrong information somewhere? Yeah. <laughs> like... I don't know. I don't think we would care that much about the mechanics if the character stakes were clearer. You know? Like, I I just don't feel like that would matter so much. But they clearly, like, they clearly didn't know what would happen. They thought one thing because they're opening right. it right there. You know what I mean? Like, if they were like, oh, we're going to use this as, like, defense. Like, we're going to use it like a bomb or something on our enemies. But they're like, let's open it up. Let's Whoops. see what's in there. <laughs> <laughs> had no idea. So I think I agree, like, it was kind of weird, like, how were they going to use this thing? Yeah. So I think we're saying a lot of negative things because this movie is so revered. Yeah. You know, like, I want to reiterate that a lot of this movie is really well made and there's a lot of great stuff in it, too. It's very well choreographed, as always, from yeah. Spielberg. The fucking ball in the beginning is, like, amazing. That thing is yeah. great. Like, there's so many good ideas in this movie. Yeah, no, again, there are so many parts of it that I love. I just don't think that it adds up to anything more than the sum of those parts. Yeah, I mean, like, I, that's, I that's really it. And and I don't, again, yeah, again, I, I have no hatred or ill will toward this movie at all. Like, found it for the most part super fun to watch i did end up re-watching it again just to like try to catch some of the plot that i knew that i had missed and of course you know we'll talk about the other movies in our next episode but i i, I think they were starting something here that they perfected more effectively later on you can say something nice indiana jones in that smoking jacket is my fetish 
<laughs> he is so hot in that smoking jacket. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you recall this smoking the jacket? The most famous indie of all? When he's at home? Is that when he's at yes. home? Okay, kind he's of. He's so hot in oh, that smoking I think he's, jacket. I think he's a mega babe in many situations <laughs> in many of these movies. Like, I think that is most certainly a big part of the appeal for me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I also think he has a great entrance in this movie where they just like they they hold back on showing his face mm-hmm. for a long time and he's kind of in shadow and i think the um the entrance that they give him when he like uh, he's shown when he finally like whips somebody is a bit of a homage to john wayne's entrance in stagecoach by john ford who we know especially if you've seen the fablemans is one of spielberg's idols mm-hmm. but that was like the, the shot of john wayne that just like kind of made him a star that was just like whoa announcing a new hero and it's very much kind of replicated here so he, he always knows how to like introduce a person like mm-hmm. i have so many complaints for movies where you just like see the, the lead and i'm like give him a moment you need a moment <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, I wish you could see the intensity with which but Becky like, is saying But, like, even just this. walking out of the shadows, the way that it's filmed is a moment. Like, yes, like give it a moment. Absolutely. He has another moment when he first sees Marion and there's, like, the big shadow oh, of yeah. him. I, I read some interviews. Like, Spielberg was very deliberate about, like, exactly how he wanted that to look. Yeah, and, you know, like, you know you have an amazing character design when you see a shadow and you, the viewer, are like, I know who that is, like, just from the shadow. Yeah, and again, that that very much goes to like how I loved the opening sequences of this movie so much. And I felt like they just didn't really have the follow-through and the rest of it to match that. Are we shitting on this movie? I think we're justifiably pointing out uh, reasons why it is not perfect, but it is still a good time at the movies, I think. You know, I mean, I think that people who are prone to interpret any kind of slight disagreement or, you know, critical, any kind of critical opinion as an attack and an assault on their own personal fandoms, like people are going to be insulted by whatever they're insulted by. And again, none of us have said it's a bad movie. It's just that there are a lot of parts that we love and it doesn't add up to all that much more than that. I think it's a very good film. And obviously holds a very important place in pop culture as like the first of the series and the blockbuster that it was. It kind of rescued Hollywood from a bit of a slump at the time. There weren't a lot of big movies in like the year leading up to this. Thank God for On Golden Pond, I guess. But uh, also this movie. We all have our favorite Spielberg movies, movies in general, that I think get a lot of criticism. And this one, I feel like, escapes criticism a lot. And so it kind of feels cathartic to be able to really dig into it in a critical way. Even though I think... A lot of these things can be seen as choices, like I said, like by trying to emulate these serial movies that were very kind of plot driven, like not not big stakes, at least in terms of like the emotion of the characters, but just kind of like sort of generally big stakes of like, uh oh, like don't let the Nazis get this thing. I get what they were going for, but it also just like isn't personally like what I've value the most out of movies which tends to be like character and dialogue or you know kind of like resonant themes like none of that is really here like this is really just trying to entertain you and kind of keep you on the edge of your seat 
like what Becky said earlier, like if I'd seen this in a theater, which I did, you know, back in the Spielberg Mm -hmm. class. And I think it was probably like a lot of fun to watch it in that class. I mean, we did it every week with a different movie. So I I don't specifically remember this one, but like, I think that's the right environment. And I think if I were seeing it in a theater, it would still be really fun because it's all this action is playing on a big screen at home and, and studying it kind of critically. Yeah, there isn't a ton to dig into beyond just like the action that that you see. It's never been my personal favorite Spielberg movie by any means, but no hate. We still love you, Raiders, (laughs) or at least like you. (laughs) I don't know. Seth is looking. Love you. Yeah. (laughs) My eyelashes. We we have notes that that we have (laughs) three eyes. (laughs) On our our eyelids, we have lots of notes. Now that we have thoroughly rated The Lost Ark, we still do have a Temple of Doom and then one last crusade ahead of us. Tune into the next episode of the podcast to hear our thoughts on the Indiana Jones sequels. And that's all the whipping we have time for on this episode of When We Were Young. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed this, please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And contribute to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash young so we can bring you more episodes of this show. I have been Seth. I'm Becky. And I hate snakes. I hate them. But mostly spiders. Don't worry, Temple of Doom's coming up. Thank you.